Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. We turn our attention to the markets this week. U.S. CPI numbers reinforcing concerns about inflation. The financial stories that shape our world. A really different reaction to the markets. More indications of just how hot the U.S. economy really is. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Catherine Keating, CEO of BNY Mellon Samzell, chairman and founder of Equity Group Investment. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. New beginnings for Britain's relations with Europe, for America's semiconductor industry, and maybe for the Chinese economy. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This week, special contributor Larry Summers on signs of a Chinese resurgence. When a population's deciding to have half as many children and have that revolution in six years, it says there's some very fundamental concerns about the future in that society. Renee James of Ampere on the bold new U.S. industrial policy for semiconductors. It's brought the importance of semiconductors and the semiconductor industry into the public discourse. And Professor Melissa Carney of the University of Maryland on investing in the future workers of America. We have the tools and the resources to reduce child poverty in this country, which would remove major impediments to children's learning, cognitive development. That is a way to invest in our future. Everywhere you look this week, Global Wall Street seemed to be turning over a new leaf, with the UK and the EU patching things up over Northern Ireland, announced in the shadow of Windsor Castle by Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. I'm confident that the Windsor framework that we announced resolves the issues that people have with the protocol. It restores balance to the Belfast Good Friday Agreement, and that's what was needed. And President Ursula von der Leyen. This new framework will allow us to begin a new chapter. It provides for long-lasting solutions that both of us are confident will work for all people and businesses in Northern Ireland. 
solutions that respond directly to the concerns they have raised. While the United States moved forward with the first stage of its Chips and Science Act, investing billions of dollars to bring semiconductor manufacturing back to America's shores. Everybody knows that this little chip that we have is part of everything that we do in our life, and most of them are manufactured overseas. So the idea here is to bring those manufacturing capabilities back home. Not to be outdone, China got into the act with PMI numbers way above expectations, indicating its economy may be roaring back faster than was thought. There was a rebound expected when the Chinese came out of their Lunar New Year, but this has been much stronger than people thought. And paving the way for President Xi's coronation at the National People's Congress beginning this weekend. This is really the last act of the transition for Xi Jinping into his third term. But from the time he was given the third term at the party congress to now, the costs of Xi Jinping's policies have been piling up. And markets pretty much picked up on the upbeat mood of the week as the S&P 500 made up what it lost last week, adding 1.9%, while the Nasdaq was up almost 2.6%. Bond yields surged on Thursday with the 10-year well above 4, but then settled back down under 3.96 for a gain of just over 4 basis points for the week overall. Here for their interpretation of what the markets were trying to tell us this week are Amy Wu Silverman. She is head of derivative strategy at RBC Capital Markets, and David Bianco, CIO of America's four DWS group. So welcome both of you. Great to have you here. David, let's start with you. What did you hear out of the markets this week? Confusion. <laughs> it was an up week, and I'm glad that the machines have been shut off, but it was a very volatile week. The market was lower. The market was up. I think the main issue for the week was the culmination of the realization that we don't know what's going to happen with inflation over the course of this year. So inflation's back. What's the Fed going to do about it is the big question. Amy? Yeah, you know, look, I would say the derivatives market echoed that to some degree. Even though we ended the week up, what we saw was actually a lot of hedging during this whole week. So, you know, as the market kind of wrestles with concerns about inflation, what you're actually seeing is investors going out, buying downside protection kind of four to six months out, wrestling with where this terminal rate is going to be, and the sentiment is still leaning pretty bearishly. So what does that tell you when people are really buying those hedges four to six months out, as you say? What what are they anticipating four to six months from now? So, you know, the derivatives market has to be very specific. So meaning if you don't get the timing right, it doesn't really matter if you get the direction right. And so, you know, they're essentially saying four to six months from now, there is going to be some sort of reckoning. We're either going to be on the right glide path to a soft landing, or unfortunately, we may be wrestling with a terminal rate that is actually much higher uh, than initially expected, and that could cause downside to the market. David, I'm curious about this glide path to a soft landing, where he talks about that. Are we on the right glide path, or do we even know at this point? Because we thought that we thought inflation's coming down. We've had some data in recent weeks that indicate maybe not so fast. Well, maybe the airport's moving around. It's one of those <laughs> pop-up airports. And uh, well, the lights for landing are still on. There's still a chance. Uh, but so much data has come in suggesting that inflation's sticky, uh, particularly at services. Service demand is strong. Thus, jobs uh, are still strong. And it's a really tight labor market. And I think you've got a labor market that's not, that's not too pleased with the pay they're getting. You still have prices rising faster than wages and wages rising faster than productivity. So it, the, the path to a soft landing is getting trickier, 
but I think there's still time, and maybe just a little bit of time left, for the Fed to act aggressively and bring down inflation fast. Well, talk about the Fed acting exactly. We're going to hear from Jay Powell next week, two days of testimony on Capitol Hill. Uh, when, at a time when he was saying, don't worry so much about inflation, he said, if it comes, we will have the tools to deal with it. Does it look like he does have the tools right now, or if, are those tools working? They have the tools, and he said, if inflation comes, and they've reiterated that they are data-dependent, that they're not on a predestined course in terms of the terminal rate destination, how high will they go, and there's no uh, certainty uh, or, or pre-planned uh, amount of rate increases from here. So be data-dependent and consider, strongly consider, uh, a larger hike at the March meeting. So what are you seeing in the derivatives market when it comes to things like the rates? Because there are people talking about a five and a half, more or less, terminal rate, but now people are starting to say, maybe it'll be six, maybe we'll have to keep going, given the data we've had from the economics lately. What are you seeing in derivatives? So one thing about derivatives markets is they really think about what the tail is. So right now I would say that 25 basis points of the next meeting is still kind of consensus, but that tail of 50 basis points has actually risen. And we're seeing investors play that either through rates options, through SOFR options, or through equity options. And you really see that, David, in the market structure as well, because we've really taken the tenor of the average option down from something like a month to a week or a day, because people are playing these data points so specifically because they matter so much. Well, I, I want to talk about this a week or a day. What, what does it do to have a, an option that's for one day or less than a day? I, it seems to be a big upswing in that. I guess it started with meme stocks, actually. It, it did. And it, it's, you know, for someone like myself who's been watching the derivatives market for 20 years, it's just unbelievably shocking because Right now, almost half of all volume in the entire S&P 500 is concentrated in options that are less than a day to expiration. That really tells you, one, how much the market structure has changed, especially on days like today where it doesn't seem to fit the market narrative. But secondly, uh, you know, it exacerbates this intraday volatility that you haven't seen in a way since prior to the pandemic. It's really changed the market structure of the day to day. So this is what I don't get about that, David. I, I would think normally, given all the uncertainty out there, people would be saying, I don't want to take as much risk. But trading in options for less than a day sounds like a pretty risky venture. I guess some investors don't want to pay for the time value, and maybe they think they've got the right trade for the day. Um, I would simply say that uh, that's why I don't read into to any one day's market activity. It's been volatile. I think that's the message in the equity market and the derivatives market. This week was especially volatile in the bond market, and that is the root of a lot of the uncertainty out there. Where are yields heading, both short-term interest rates and longer 10-year Treasury bond yields? And the 10-year yield poked its head up above 4% this week, and I think that's a, a reminder that the bond market only has so much patience, and I think it's running out for inflation to come down faster. So to put you in the spot here, because I think you're the derivatives person, uh, are your derivatives taking some of the value away from the signals we're getting out of the equity markets because we can't quite tell? It's all about options? Y you know what? Whenever folks need someone to blame, they usually come back <laughs> to derivatives. So, so, you know, I'll just take one for the team there. But, um, you know, w one thing we've spoken about with investors is people used to use the VIX as a signal. Let's it's quite a common signal for risk. The VIX is broken down, so the correlation between the market and the VIX used to be if the VIX went up, the market should be going down, and vice versa. They've been going in the same direction for a while, and part of it is the VIX isn't capturing what's happening intraday. It's essentially what's capturing what's happening kind of on a one-month-out basis, but all the action is really, really short-dated, and so even some of our gold standard indicators, if you will, for volatility are, are having to be reframed. 
Okay, thank you so much to David Bianco and when, a- Amy Wu Silverman. They're both going to stay with us. We're going to turn the question of how do we make some money out of all of this uncertainty. And by the way, does any of it reside in China? That's coming up next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. We are in a period where companies are copying the capitalist system. They're privatizing government-owned businesses everywhere. They're privatizing pension systems. And it's just a fantastic time to uh, be in the financial business and uh, you know, have the opportunity to participate in this global growth. That was then Citigroup CEO Sandy Weil on Wall Street Week back in November of 2000 when the number one movie in the country was How the Grinch Stole Christmas. The number one song in the country was Come On Over Baby by the Backstreet Boys. And China was well on its way to joining the WTO, raising hopes its style of running economy might be coming on over toward the Western way. Still with us are Amy Wu Silverman of RBC and David Bianco of DBWS. So we talked about the markets in the last segment, Amy. Give us a sense of where the opportunities are. And let me ask you specifically, do you think there are opportunities in China, given we're about to go into the NPC, we're about to see President Xi re-upped? I do. I, I think there are opportunities and options in China, specifically because there's an event. Uh, and that's what options love the most. They love to play an event because anything that could potentially increase your volatility can increase the value of your options. So for folks who have been looking at the China reopening story, that may be a way to get back into ASHR, FXI, EEM calls, which we've seen before in the beginning of the year and maybe reloaded now. What about other sectors, David? I mean, you mentioned banks. What about big tech, for example? It had a hard year last year. Where is it this year? It's off to a terrific start. The proper tech, the proper tech titans, um, the ones that are in the technology sector, uh, have held up really well. 
Um, and I think part of that is the, the people are seeking the uh, stability of those businesses, the strength and resilience of those businesses. And don't forget those are strong balance sheets with a lot of cash, earning more interest income than they did in years past. Uh, but we also try to look at the market as to where is their upside that's worth the risk. I see that in healthcare. There's more risk, but good upside in banks. Uh, and uh, tech, we're underweight now. We've moved more mm. significantly underweight on it. Um, we're sticking more with things like um, communications, where we see more of a price discount uh, and, and more upside worth the risk there. Amy, what do you think about healthcare? David mentioned it. Yeah, it's interesting. We just went through an exercise, essentially, through our universe of covered companies within the RBC universe. And we essentially looked at their sharp ratios. We just said, given that the risk-free rate has gone so much higher, you know, where's your excess return attractive per level volatility? And healthcare is actually one of the sectors that is ranking quite well. That's interesting. Healthcare, you think, is a strong one? Yes, it had a tough start, as I think there are investors running to the cyclicals or running to the defensives or maybe leaving the asset, equity asset class to go into bonds, which is an alternative, uh, powerful alternative at this stage. Healthcare got left behind, but I think that's the sector for the for the decade. When we're talking about equities, obviously we're talking in part uh, about earnings expectations. Where are we on earnings? Have we bottomed out? No, they keep drifting down, almost in a painful, steady, gradual drip of uh, downward earnings estimates for especially the first half of this year. I think at the best, S&P earnings will be flat uh, at about $222, which is what earnings were last year. So, Amy, as I understand sharp ratio, which is limited, it's a combination of volatility and return, what you're going to be likely to get. When you look at that, where do you see the highest volatility, the highest return? Yeah, so, so essentially what the Sharpe Ratio is saying to you is, you know, for the level of heartache, the level of risk that I'm taking, where are you getting your most return? So, so as I mentioned, healthcare was one of the yeah. sections we looked at which looked attractive. And interestingly, the other is large cap technology. And the reason is actually not related to the excess return. It's actually because the volatilities come in on a 12-month basis in those stocks. Okay, thank you so much. It's really great to have both of you with us today for this discussion. That's Amy Wu Silverman of RBC Capital Markets. By the way, a derivatives person, as you might have noticed, and David Bianco of DWS America. And one of the things we focus on here are the long-term prospects for investors. And necessarily, those prospects depend upon our growth. And that is a dependent upon the size and the quality of our workforce. And when we talk about that, we necessarily have to think about our children. Melissa Carney, professor of economics at the University of Maryland, has been focusing on just this subject. And she joins us once again on Wall Street Week. Welcome back, Melissa. It's great to have you here. So, Thanks for having me, David. So uh, we tend to think about children and the future workforce in terms of education. And goodness knows we have a lot we can do in this country about this. But you point out that from the pandemic, we saw something about not just the education, but the care for our children. That's exactly right. So everybody is behind the need for a skilled workforce and boosting educational attainment, and everyone's behind improving schools. But the truth of the matter is that kids' home life really dictates their ability to thrive and learn in schools. And we don't do nearly enough in this country to make sure that the material needs of our nation's children are being taken care of. We have millions of children show up at school every day with the burdens of poverty or economic insecurity. They're too tired or hungry or stressed to learn to the fullest of their ability. What was amazing during the pandemic is that, somewhat surprisingly, we actually managed to reduce child poverty in this country by a half or a third. I mean, this was really a historic accomplishment. And so how did we do that? Well, Congress extended the child tax credit, made it more generous 
increased the full credit amount from $2,000 to $3,000, $3,600 for a child under the age of six. And it made the credit fully uh, refundable, which meant that even parents who didn't work, who had no earnings, could get the full credit amount. And the upshot of that was a historic reduction in child poverty. And I think that means looking for a bipartisan way forward to an enhanced child tax credit. So coming back to the investment question, I mean, we're, we're not continuing that program the way it was, at least as of, not as of right now. Uh, objections have been it costs too much money and it actually discourages work. That's right. So Congress, despite you know, everybody, the celebrated reduction in child poverty. Congress did not make the expansion of the child tax credit permanent. And a few, there were a few key hangups, political hangups, reasonable hangups. So one was the worry that if we permanently sent checks to out-of-work parents of $3,000 or $3,600, that would actually induce too many parents to leave the workforce. That was a really big hang-up with congressional Republicans. As you mentioned, another worry was that it was too expensive. Um, it added, you know, over $100 billion to the cost of the existing child tax credit. We proposed that parents who are out of work only get half of the full amount. And then the full credit amount of $3,000 or $3,600, that could phase in steeply. And so what does this do? This rewards work. This incentivizes parents to go to work. And it still gets a lot of money, material resources, to these very low-income families. The phase in, as I understand, that means if I make more money as somebody who has half of this title of tax credit, I get some more of my full credit incrementally. Exactly. As you go to work, for every $100 you earn, you get $30 until you hit the full credit amount, right? So we're increasing the return to an hour of work. On the issue of the child tax credit during the 2021 expansion being too expensive, well, a lot of the additional income was actually not going towards fighting child poverty or bolstering the income of low-income families. A lot of that was the full credit, $3,000, $3,600, was going to very high-income families. So there's a way to keep the cost down, target the resources on children and families for whom this money will make a real difference. It would really increase their ability to pay the rent, to buy nutritious food, to pay for high-quality child care. Target the resources where we know there's a real large social return and do it in a way that doesn't discourage parental work. Again, there's an easy path forward here. It's obvious. It's just playing with the policy parameters. And we can't afford not to do this as a country. Professor, thank you so much for being back with us. That is Professor Melissa Carney of the University of Maryland. Coming up, we wrap up the week with special contributor Larry Summers of Harvard. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. 
This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. This is Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. We're joined once again by our very special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. So, Larry, we spent a lot of the week trying to figure out, is the Fed ahead? Are they behind? Where are the markets in relationship? Where is the Fed compared to where it thought it was going to be, what its plan is? The Fed is behind the curve. There have been six jolts uh, to the Fed in the last six weeks. The seasonal adjustments of the CPI took the trend downwards in inflation during 2022 out of the data. The inflation figures for the last several months of 2022 were revised upwards, further taking any sign of declining inflation out. We got a CPI number that was uh, very uh, disappointing uh, in terms of how high the level and the core was, and that was reinforced by the uh, PCE uh, information when it uh, came in. All the indicators for January read strong, suggesting that monetary policy has not yet gotten substantial traction in slowing the fullness of uh, the aggregate uh, economy uh, down. The uh, wage inflation uh, numbers, uh, as they have been revised, no longer show the kind of reductions that we had been uh, expecting, or many had been uh, expecting uh, to see. And you've seen interest rates uh, move uh, to ratchet upwards with the 10-year crossing four and the two-year reaching record uh, levels. Put all that uh, together, and I think a reasonable assessment of where the Fed is would say that they have not been this far behind the curve uh, for a year or uh, so. Uh, once again, the forces, the arguments made by Team Transitory have uh, unfortunately looked more like uh, wishful thinking. And you can see that in uh, the evolution of rhetoric from we will have a soft landing towards it's possible 
that we will have a soft landing. Of course, it is possible that we will have a soft landing, but maximizing that limited prospect depends upon realistically assessing the situation. Okay, once they've assessed the situation realistically, if they're behind the curve, how do they catch up? What do they do going forward? What is the policy? Look, uh, they're not in the right place right now with respect to March. Um, I saw an estimate suggesting that markets right now are assigning a 22% probability to a 50 basis point move uh, in March. The Fed right now should have the door wide open to a 50 basis point move uh, in March. No need to be committed to that till we see the next employment figures, till one sees what happens uh, in markets. But if markets are now saying 22 percent, that means the door isn't open to that possibility. And there's a very significant chance that that's going to be the right thing uh, to do. The main reason to move slowly in monetary policy is because you want to preserve the option of moving less far. It's looking less and less likely that the right thing to do is to not raise rates by at least another 50 basis points. And if that is the right thing to do, it's best for credibility and it's best for ultimate stability to make that move more quickly. So I've been very disappointed to see some of the speeches coming out of the Fed that have seemed to leave uh, March uh, off the table as a possible place for 50. And I hope the senior leadership of the Fed will guide to agnosticism on the possibility of a 50 basis point move uh, in March and we'll do that sometime very soon. Larry, we all uh, cling to the notion that our central bank is independent from the political process in this country. At the same time, we're going to have Jay Powell up for testimony for two days before Congress next week. We also have a nomination to come of a new vice chair. Does politics necessarily get injected? Already people are talking about possible candidates for the vice chair position, whether they're a hawk or a dove, with some of the more progressives in Congress saying, let's get a dove in there. I guess I'd say uh, this. I'd say that the chairman has an important opportunity when he testifies to reset uh, expectations and to address the growing credibility problems that the Fed has. I think progressives are making a serious mistake even by their own lights. If there's a sense that progressive political conviction is guiding the next nomination, and even more if that's successful in getting a person confirmed, I think there'll be very little impact on the next two or three appointments, next two or three decisions, because the Fed's going to want to show its independence. The incumbents are going to want to look like they have not been uh, pushed around. A new person's not going to have immediate uh, impact. So you won't affect rates in the short run, but that sign of politicization will uh, cause issues of medium-term expectation, and that will cause the back end of the curve to rise. So ironically, that kind of political pressure is likely to put more inflation premium into interest rates 
and likely to lead to higher long rates, which means higher mortgage rates for the very people uh, progressives are trying uh, to help. This is really a very misguided and problematic uh, strategy for progressives, even if one had their judgment that what's most important is lower rates and to uh, stimulate uh, the economy. So I hope they'll back off uh, this kind of public campaign. Larry, uh, on Sunday begins the meetings of the National People's Congress over in China. Everybody's anticipating new projections for growth as, as well as a new economic team for President Xi. What are you looking for? You know, I think there are two things that people should uh, keep in mind uh, as they're thinking about uh, China. One is uh, the importance of predictability and uh, stability. I think that the Chinese um, underestimate the extent to which uh, previously respected members of the financial community can disappear without that having collateral impacts on uh, confidence and on the flow of uh, capital. And if there's a sense of the politicization of things financial to a growing degree, I think that's something they've got to be very careful of. There's a backdrop that's maybe an undertold story, which is that uh, which is what's happening demographically. Uh, Nick Eberstadt, who is the leading watcher of all things uh, demographic, tells us in the Washington Post that China has half as many births last year as it did in 2016. That is a sea change with extraordinary speed. It, the downwards trend had heavily started before COVID. And in addition to what that means for the labor force, the age structure of the population down the road, when a population's deciding to have half as many children and have that revolution in six years, it says there's some very fundamental concerns about the future in that society. Larry, thank you so very much. That's our very special contributor here on Wall Street Week. He's Larry Summers of Harvard. Coming up, if baseball can pick up the pace, why can't Congress? This is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. 
From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Finally, one more thought. Haste makes waste. So Erasmus supposedly said back in the 16th century. But whatever passed for hasty 500 years ago looks awfully slow today. What with apps giving us instantaneous trading. Investing should be as ubiquitous as shopping online. It should just be something that people do. Or those scratch-off lottery tickets we won't admit that we are all buying. I got you a cash multiplier ticket so you have the chance to multiply your winnings up to 100 times. Even as fast as most things are today, some things could move a bit more quickly, like baseball games. Notorious for going long, though not as long as that 2018 World Series game that went 18 innings in over seven hours. That was a great baseball game. I don't know, seven hours, whatever it was, you know. Uh, probably people back home are waking up right now to the end. It's probably one of the best if not the best game I, I've ever been part of. Red Sox coach Cora might have enjoyed that long game, but Major League Baseball has a better idea. This week we saw the first games played under new rules that are supposed to pick up the pace, including a pitch clock to keep the game moving. I think that the clock has been really successful in the minor leagues with a minimum of disruption in terms of the play of the game. Early reviews indicated it was shortening games by an average of 30 minutes a game, though also causing a bit of confusion when one of the first violations wasn't for the pitcher failing to deliver the ball to the plate on time, but for the batter not getting ready. Time called. Conley took too much time. He's out. He wasn't. He oh. didn't have his eyes on the pitcher oh. by the eight-second pitch mark on the pitch clock. It makes us wonder what else might benefit from a pitch clock or its equivalent. An obvious target are those Oscar acceptance speeches, which they've tried to keep shorter by turning up the music, leading some award winners to try a competition with the audible pitch clock. Who among us hasn't wished for a pitch clock to be put on those endless strategic planning meetings we all attend? But most of all, what we apparently need is a pitch clock on debt ceiling relief, one that would require Congress to get its act together before we're on the brink of default. Do it clean, do it without brinksmanship, do it without this risk of hostage taking where things could blow up. And while we're at it, maybe we could ban shifting in Congress the way they've done for the infield in baseball. But then again, where would that leave Joe Manchin? And so now we're back in the, the Manchinology game, wondering whether there's one more inning left to play. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, 
influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.